0: You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation.
1: Well, hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of our new podcast, Find Your Voice. And my guest today is a community leader who is also one of the founding members of Voices of Goldstein. Simon Gibson spent 18 years as the principal of St Michael's Grammar School in St Kilda. He's on the board of Skyline Education Foundation and is also the chair of Council of Trinity Grammar, someone who has A lot to say about education and we will get on to that, something that's close to my heart, having a father who was a school teacher and a principal for many, many years. Simon, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Zoe. It's, It's great to be with you.
1: Look, I wanted to talk to you because I think in this podcast we can talk to people who are perhaps in parliament or at the front line of some of the big issues of our time. But I also want to use it as an opportunity to talk to people in Goldstein about the issues that concern them, what's important. And in your case, I thought it would be great to talk to you about why you got involved in voices and just why the movement resonates with you. Can you just tell me the story of how you got caught up in this thing that we're now both involved in?
0: I wonder if Zoe, I could just sort of take it back a step as well, because I, I've been fascinated, particularly recently, about the growth of independence around the country and this movement, particularly in a number of inner city electorates, for peoples in a position of real dis- dissatisfaction with the political process, how they're being represented or not represented, and and an increasing frustration with the distance and disconnect that seems to exist between uh, our political leaders, and I use that term advisedly, and actually where where the people are. And it struck me that actually one of the things that has happened over the last couple of years uh, as a direct consequence of the impact of the pandemic, as we've been pushed back into our local communities, it's almost as though we've rediscovered it. And all of a sudden, we've had this opportunity and time to reflect more on what's important to us, particularly in the face of this really confronting period in all of our lives that we've never experienced before, where our freedoms have been ripped away from us, we've been forced back into our communities, we've, we've stopped uh, or we've been limited in our opportunities to travel, even to work. And it's, we've rediscovered our communities. And I know one of the most exciting things, I think, that happened, particularly in that first lockdown that we had, was all of a sudden all these WhatsApp groups that started up and uh, you know, Facebook messenger groups based around neighbourhoods and communities. And it's like we've rediscovered that. And in so, dis- in so doing, we've rediscovered our voice about what is important to us. And there's all of a sudden this sense that actually what we've discovered is important to us, what we value, what we think is important, what we think matters is actually removed from what all those people in government actually believe we think is important. And it's almost like we've realised that we've actually been taken for granted. And I suppose... Coming back to the uh, the nub of your question, what I started to sense more and more, and I have to confess I have felt this for a long time, is that my voice is, has meant little. And the politics has become, particularly over the last 20 years or so, more and more a game played by a small group of people, which is all about winning and getting into power the next time. So the window of vision, perspective, is no longer for the future about what's good for the country, what's good for the people, what's good for the collective. It's actually how do we secure enough seats to get into parliament the next time around so we can continue to enjoy the power and the privilege. Mm. So I, all these things were going through my head at the beginning of the year. And I got a, a call out of the blue from someone who happened to be one of the first people I met in Melbourne. And uh, She said, I'd like to have a chat with you about, you know, this group of people who were talking about these sorts of possibilities. Would you be interested in being part of it? And it was in many ways, it's sort of like discovering your tribe. You know, all of a sudden you realize that you're not alone. You're not the only person who's feeling disconnected, disenfranchised, disengaged. And there's an opportunity to have a voice initially with that group and then discovering that there were all these people from a variety of different walks of life who were feeling the same, that their voices weren't being heard, that the issues that were important to them were being neglected. And in particular, I mean, the ones that we talk so much about, the issues of that lack of action around climate change, you know, the increasing, uh, almost um, arrogant disregard of accountability, of integrity in politics, a denial of authenticity and honesty. And then really deeply in that, and this is something that you know, might bring us back to education, You know, the sense that we are becoming more unequal, less equitable as a society, and the narrative that is happening in Canberra is increasingly out of sync with the stories that we want to tell about ourselves as a country and the future that we see for ourselves. And I could get into a whole load of conversations about Orwell and notions of, you know, he who controls uh, the present, who controls the, past, who controls the past, who controls the past, controls the future. That sense that at the moment we've got a narrative that is tightly controlled in Canberra about who we are as a country, but we're believing something different, I think, collectively and increasingly, the way we want to explain ourselves to ourselves is, is very different from the way in which it's being explained in Canberra.
1: Now, uh, I, I obviously am in this period of um, transforming myself from an objective observer into an independent candidate. And, and I don't want this interview to turn into a series of sort of Dorothy Dixes or a marketing play for myself, but I'm actually genuinely interested, particularly as we see the momentum build around the independence around the country, and I have my own view, but why you think and why the others who joined you in the Voices of Goldstein group think that having more independence in Parliament will help break that sort of gridlock that you're talking about?
0: Well, there's a a couple of ways of looking at it. One of the things that I, I think so many of us are incredibly frustrated about is that you can get a government that can have what, 51% of the two-party preferred vote and then claim an absolute mandate, and I use that term advisedly, but a mandate on every policy they put up, as though even if, you know, there's, let's face it, what did uh, the LNP get at the last election? Something like 44% of the primary across the country. So that means 56% of the people didn't vote for them in first preference, yet they still claim that that they've been voted in to promulgate these particular policies. The reality is that I think, and again, this is my view, is that we're forced increasingly into a position of voting number one for the least unpalatable party, the one that maybe gets it right 50, 60% of the time about what we think. And there's no subtlety, there's no nuance. And once the party's in play, there's no opportunity for compromise and negotiation of massaging things. I mean, I know we've got the Senate, et cetera, et cetera, that has had some success there, but there's no opportunity to shift or change. And so for me, it's actually having a representative in parliament who actually is coming back to refer to the electorate, to the views of the people and representing them and seeking to argue the case for that particular group of people, genuinely acting as a representative (laughs) which I think is what they're called mm. um, in Parliament, rather than actually pushing back down a particular doctrinaire orthodoxy that comes from a party position that we see increasingly um, driven by vested interests of a small group of people rather than actually genuinely reflecting the majority view of the population. And I could, you know, if you want specific examples, one only has to think of the marriage equality debate and how that played out. And you can have... Conservative electorates in Sydney with 75% of the people saying, we want this to happen, and the representatives saying, nah, nah, you no, know, no, we're not going to let that happen. So I think, for me, that's why I think independents are really important. And, and if you reflect on I mean, Gillard's uh, hung parliament, there was more legislation promulgated during her time than subsequent parliaments. And that was driven, you know, you had the independents in the centre working, that they had to work to negotiate legislation through. They couldn't just try and drive it through, or alternatively, as we have now, not promulgate any legislation at all.
1: Now, as a school principal for 20 years, obviously, you would have had to deal with a, a very broad spectrum of humans, and... I'm curious then, because you obviously have learned to read people quite well, what your read is about not only the mood of the electorate, but about whether this is a party political issue or sort of a sense of a deeper problem about stalled two-party politics, if you like.
0: Well, you know, it's it's an interesting question, Zoe, because... um, there are very, very few binary choices left in our lives, really, you know, that's black and white. Uh, our life is driven by multiple choices. We can personalize our playlists on Spotify. You know, we can, we can get our, um, even our advertising is deliver, delivered to us in a personal way. We have lots of choice and control within the algorithms that are set by social media, of course. And we have this binary choice in politics that we recognise is disconnected from who we are and what we think is important. And increasingly, we also see uh, a particular culture in Parliament that seems out of kilter and out of step with where we are as a society now too. And I can only reflect on, on the last few days of Parliament with you know, some of the language, you know, where you've, you've got the leader of the opposition calling a senior uh, minister in the government of Buffett, and, and that seemed to be part of the argy-bargy of politics. Um, And I saw on uh, a particular senior journalist on Insiders, uh, I think last Sunday, the Sunday before, saying that by nature, um, parliament is combative and it should be. And I think people don't want that now. They they, they want things that actually are much more reflective and consultative about what they think. They want to see parliament conducted in a, a more human conciliatory negotiated way where there is the opportunity for evolutionary compromise and development of legislation. Um, and, and as I said, they want to see a narrative that better reflects who we are as a country and a nation that, that actually reflects back who we are. I mean, if, if I give an example of that without, I'm, I might be sounding a bit confused in where I'm going in all of this, I'm sorry, but I, I wanna know how many places, you actually hear the term fair dinkum now, apart from the mouths of politicians. It's like an outdated set of constructs that cease to reflect who we are, the binary nature of politics, the doctrinaire orthodoxy of the party over everything else. Yet the rest of our society now is increasingly about acknowledging individuals, recognising personal choice, the importance of things. But also by the same token, and going back to my first comments, about a recognition of the importance of community and of working collaboratively and collectively together.
1: Mm. I want to touch on education with you. Obviously, it's your deep area of expertise. And, you know, it's a subject that's very relevant after the two years that we've had with the workload that teachers have experienced, the fact that parents have had to become active participants in supporting the education of their children at home, and also the impact on our kids. What, what's your sense of how this might change our education system? Do you, do you think it will refocus the approach uh, in any way?
0: Do you know, I think that the pandemic, COVID, has the capacity to be one of the most disruptive opportunities to transform education that we've had in 150 years. My fear is that it won't uh, because it'll be too easy to go back to the way in which things were done. A, it's economically expedient. You put kids of, you know, classes of 25, 30, you advance them chronologically at the end of every year. Um, During the year, You know, in secondary school, you advance them uh, through the day from class to class and class, um, spit them out the other end at 3.30. Yet, whilst it has been incredibly disruptive, I think there are a whole load of things that COVID has shown us that, you know, and and remote schooling and distance learning has shown us is important. And there's a whole load that isn't as important. I think one of the things it shows is the importance of schools, of socialising communities that actually teach kids how to operate together. Uh, gives them a place of belonging. Uh, it's a lo- locus for formation of community, not just for kids, but also for families. So the centres of communities are schools, and I think we've realised how valuable and important that is. And schools that have done remote and distance learning particularly effectively have been the ones who've acknowledged that that the school is about connecting kids, and then learning comes second, rather than seeking to replicate online what what's happened in schools you know, for 150 years. The second thing that comes out of that, there's a whole load that we teach, actually is not really as important. I think the fundamentals of literacy and numeracy, particularly in the early years, is extraordinarily important. But a lot of the other stuff is less important. So it's actually sifting through exactly what, what does that mean? What's actually really important? And then looking at the ways in which you can re, reimagine schools that takes the lessons about building connection and community collaboration uh, and privileging that sometimes over, you know, uh, a slavish adherence to a particular curriculum that says, you know, you must teach this, this and this. But that that takes a very brave person to actually reconceptualize that because it's predicated on the sense too. Going back to some of my earlier comments about personalization of actually acknowledging that kids learn in different ways uh, they hit different learning milestones at different times they have different interests they have different strengths talents and abilities and it's how you actually start to really cater them to them to engage kids in that whole process and i um, it's interesting the conversations I've had. You know that that sometimes those kids who are uh, neurodiverse, who have real challenges and problems in normal school, have just excelled as a consequence of all of this because they've been given the opportunity to engage in quite a different way, without the distractions of the classroom environment, and there are others who have really struggled because they go to school for the social engagement. And, you know, that's where they get their energy from and that's how they engage in learning. They need people around them to be successful. But to genuinely tackle that, as I say, requires courage. It requires vision. It requires governments to actually really rethink how schools could be. And probably more broadly, to think how education could be. But let's face it, we're not prepared to even tackle You know, the the, the fact that we've got eight jurisdictions covering education in this country, often in competition with each other, we're still wedded to a particular organisational model of schools that dates back to the Education Act of 1862, with primary and secondary, the expectation that kids, you know, over a few short weeks and warm nights in summer at the end of year six, suddenly become different forms of learners in February of the following year when they enter the gates of high school. And then something happens to them apparently at the end of year 12, which sees a similar transformation in how they might learn. There's a huge amount of work that could be done, all based on this disruptive opportunity that the pandemic has provided uh, and the learnings that our teachers have had and schools have had institutionally around it. But when it comes to teachers, I, I can tell you they're absolutely burnt out at the end of this period. Oh, I can imagine. Um, absolutely <laughs> exhausted with the constant in and out, in school, out of school, remote learning, et cetera, et cetera. And there will be, I, I imagine, and I'm hearing a lot of it, a lot of people exiting the teaching profession and already are seeing states advertising aggressively, certainly in Victoria, for teachers, New South Wales, WA, because they've got vast shortages.
1: Yeah. There's quite a lot to unpack in what you've said, and I, I do want to touch on the the value of teachers, particularly the value of female teachers, which is something that we touched on with Sam Mostyn last last week, when we're talking about the revaluation of women's work. But before I do, I just want to go to the potential of that disruption to um, rebalance some inequality in education. It seems to me that the pandemic, you know, it opened a whole lot of Opportunities in regard to healthcare, for example, you know, giving people in rural and regional areas access to um, talk to specialists in, in the cities, you know, as a very simple example in the med- medical front. Could the pandemic and the disruption that's caused support some increased equality in the education system for kids as well?
0: In terms of equality of access, hmm. yeah, really If uh, let, let me tell you a couple of, if I may, a couple of anecdotes, because after I finished at St. Michael's, I worked for two years running a national nonprofit called The Song Run, which was focused very much on building the capacity of primary teachers in schools located in high needs communities uh, around arts learning, because that's one of the areas that's most neglected and a lot of teachers feel uh, really lack confidence in. But it's one of the best ways to engage kids who uh, come to school without, you know, the middle class and understanding of the middle class discourse of school and schooling. So they're disconnected. You want to engage them in school. And the best way to do that is through the art. But what that gave me was an opportunity to actually go into some of the most disadvantaged schools around the country from remote indigenous communities right the way through to schools in Western Sydney, Western Melbourne, et cetera, et cetera. And what became very, very clear was that we, we could roll out one of the best online learning platforms that you could possibly focus a stick at, but you're not gonna address the issues of inequality and inequity in education by simply doing that. It actually requires a much more fundamental approach which actually starts to really value the importance of investing in those communities and not just in education, but from my point of view, obviously in education. But there are schools falling down. And I was in one school in New South Wales. And I'm not going to name the school because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But this was a school that was built in the 70s. It had... Uh, been designed to hold about seven hundred kids it had about two three hundred kids in there and a real an incredible rich diversity of nationalities ethnic background and so on but it was falling down and apparently in New South Wales they have a schedule a five year schedule of maintenance for schools and they come in and then they do an assessment and then each year they come back and do something and the principal of this particular school bearing in mind limited almost no technology the gutters has rusted through you know pl- no real playground equipment, nothing really to speak of. He said, well, last year they came back and painted an electrical cabinet. And the year before they repainted the lines in the car park, that was the only maintenance. So when you've got that limited investment, even in the physical infrastructure, you've got these great teachers working there, but they're working under such significant challenge. So, and no technology, kids going home with none of that middle-class support, that will, you know, sit the kids down, get them working, let alone necessarily, maybe even access to a laptop or a desktop and, you know, unlimited um, Wi-Fi. So I think it's it's a huge issue. Yes, the potential's there, but it's got to be accompanied by by much much more. And, and um, to me, that's one of my particular passions is that having spent a lot of my career working at both ends of the spectrum in terms of socioeconomic advantage is that consistently we see governments saying, well, there's this much of the pie and we'll divide this much here and this much here. And it always gets to be a zero sum game about the amount of money that's allocated to education. But the reality being, if we want to have the, the, you know, the knowledge economy of the future, the investment has to come in education. We've just got to vastly increase the amount of money that's allocated there to ensure that everyone has that educational opportunity. Mm. And the biggest focus, I think, has to be PrEP 1 and 2, in particular, to build those foundational blocks of literacy and numeracy. I mean, the old adage is that, you know, that initially when you're in PrEP, you're learning to read, but by the time you get to uh, year 3, you're reading to learn. If you've never actually been able to actually achieve that, then you're going to be consistently falling behind and behind. And the research at ACER is unequivocal. By the time you get to year six, you can have kids in the one class and there can be up to five years difference between the kid at the top and the kid uh, at the bottom, if you like, in terms of um, learning attainment. And a lot of that's sitting around those opportunities that stem back to and, prep one to yeah.
1: and then given what you've said then about the burnout level among mm. teachers and teachers you know perhaps considering leaving the profession and this is you know an interesting sign of the times given the pressure on various forms of workplace unable to get staff i i sort of think oh Well, that's a bit of a pessimistic outlook, although is that a way of forcing that revaluation a bit of teaching? Not to say governments will do it, but it's also an opportunity because there's so much goodwill behind teachers after what's happened over the last couple of years that perhaps rather than to resist improving wages and conditions for teachers, for example, to actually step into that and say, okay, well, what's actually the value of education and the teaching profession to the future of our nation?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it gets back to one of the things that I was talking around earlier, Zoe. It's it's not only about wages and conditions. And I, I, I'll i come back to that if I have time, because I'm, I'm talking a lot. Um, but it's also going back to what I was saying about what actually is important and what matters in schools and schooling. What do we actually want? kids to be able to know and do and I think if you speak to a lot of people and ask them to reflect back on their scores and what you know what school meant to them they remember teachers they don't always remember you know what they learned in maths in year nine or, you or know what, what they did <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> novel they you know they were they were encouraged to uh, read in year 11 and probably didn't but um and you know I was I hesitate to say this, but I'm sure that if there are audits done in particular schools, there will often be, I'm not saying there always will be, but there will often be material that is taught and retaught. And I, you know... I always remember chatting with someone when I was interviewing a year five for year seven entry at St. Michael's, who I think had studied the Egyptians three years in a row. You know, so kids go through all of this and you actually ask, or really wonder, well, what is it that you actually learned and what was it of value and how could that actually be better or more effective? You know, the skills are probably necessary and important, the research skills and so on. But how much would have been uh, how much time could have been saved and reinvested in things that mattered? I mean, the reality is that now that that, that although we've shifted considerably in the last 20 years, there's still a sense that, you know, the, the teachers, the sage on the stage, I think as the old cliche goes. Um, because so much of what it is that we need to know and, and learn, we can access so quickly on the Internet now. We don't actually have to have a whole load of knowledge stuffed in here. What we need are the skills to actually research, authenticate what it is that we see, synthesize and represent. And in so doing hopefully also create new knowledge. But there's there still is less of a focus on that if you think that you know that the absolute pinnacle of secondary education continues to be a pen and paper exam. All designed still to provide a four digit number coily balanced over a decimal point that's known as the ATAR. You know that ranks you literally ranks you from you know 99.99 right the way down um, in terms of how you're positioned against your cohort all those years of study end up in that i know it's under change it's under stress but that still drives down what it is that we do Mm. and so for me it's actually that needs to be tackled to free up the time for teachers to do the stuff that matters uh, reduces the expectations driven by a crowded curriculum. And as you know too, Zoe, I'm sure you've seen this, is that anytime there's a social issue or a social problem, somebody says school should deal with it in their curriculum and it just gets slotted in and you've got to try and find time for it. So I think that's part of the stress is I think it's also teachers suffer suffer uh, extraordinary from demands by parents increasingly. And I think they're expected to work extraordinarily hard to meet all the different demands that are coming at them. So I think we need to reduce the demands. We need to think sensibly about what schools are and what they should be. And we need to address the issues of wages and conditions. It's a
1: great conversation. It's actually a a wonderful forum to have these nuanced conversations about the big issues of our time, Simon Gibson, who was the principal of St Michael's Grammar School and also one of the founders of Voices of Goldstein. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time on our podcast.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Zoe. It's been great. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel. Level 1 9 214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.